backwards series through the book of Acts. Um, the sermon series that we have focused on is Outside the Box, which has really taught us the importance of I need to stop placing my perception of who God is within this limited perception, within this man-made, self-produced box. Because if he is an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-great, ever-present, beyond-my-comprehension, merciful, gracious God, I need to stop trying. We need to know him, but you can't fully know him because he's God. And if you could fully know him, he wouldn't be God. And there's joy in that. There's liberty in that. So that's what we've really set out to hopefully accomplish throughout the latter portion of the book of Acts as we have seen the first church completely supersede all of the man-made boundaries of what it's like to worship God, what it's like to serve God, how I can grow closer to God. Because in the book of Acts in the first century church, we have seen a radical step in a direction that challenged traditions, cultural norms that have defied racial tensions that have been present for centuries leading up to the first century. It has completely broken down every barrier in God's plan for the world. <coughs> and powerful. In the last few weeks, we've really focused on the Apostle Paul and his life, his ministry, his journey. We've seen his three missionary journeys in particular, how he massively spread the gospel all throughout the Roman Empire. And in this last week, as we conclude this sermon series, we're going to take a look at the Apostle Paul's final journey. Historically, he was martyred. He spent some time in Rome, where we're going to see he journeys to. And the Bible doesn't talk about it, but... We, we see it, he admonishes and believes it, God has made it clear that he knows he's going to die in Rome, proclaiming the gospel before Caesar, um, and in extra biblical accounts, so outside of scripture in historical studies, we know Paul was martyred. Um, so as grim as that can be, there is so much life and so much direction and so much hope in the final journey of the Apostle Paul that we see recorded. Uh, so I would encourage you, as always, read through Acts. I have to summarize chapters 27 and a little bit of 28 for our sermon today. Uh, but I'm skipping a little bit from when Paul finished his third missionary journey and a little bit of time he spent in Jerusalem. So I encourage you, go back and read that. It's powerful. Now we're picking up from the start of the voyage when Paul knows it's time for me to head out on my last journey. And the journey that we see is an unexpected journey. It's a journey where Paul knew what his destination was, and he knew what the outcome once he arrived at the destination would be, but the journey to that destination was unexpected, specifically because Paul faced a literal storm on his journey. And, and we're going to talk about, really, storms today. Um, you ever feel like you go through difficult circumstances in your life that are completely outside of your control? I mean completely outside of your control, especially things that you didn't ask for. We can all be honest that we place ourselves in poor situations and we're like, yeah, I, I shouldn't have done that and that's why I'm here, right? I'm really not talking about that today. Let's get that off the bat. Um, I'm talking about situations, storms that we didn't cause, 
but we still have to go through. For my wife and I, we were sitting down, and I talked with her about this, and I said, I just want to share with the church maybe just a few quick points throughout our life so far and our journey so far. What are some storms that we went through uh, that I can share? Number one was many of you know when we first got married and moved out to Washington, believing and knowing God was calling us to minister across the United States. Uh, it was a part of our honeymoon trip. We were excited for it. We were trying to enjoy it. Um, and when we were in Montana, we got robbed. And, I mean, everything, money, uh, personal identification, it was identity theft, all of our wedding gifts, everything that we had, minus a little bag of dirty clothes and my computer, was robbed. Um, I didn't ask for that, and I didn't believe that I did anything uh, to, to need to go through that, but it happened. Um, when COVID hit in 2020, uh, you know, the church that I was at, I had to receive a pay deduction. My wife got not laid off, but she got furloughed. You know, she the company still wanted her, but they couldn't pay her. And then I had to get a second job working as a manager at Chick-fil-A. That was unexpected. I didn't ask for that, and then we didn't do anything for that to happen. To be completely honest with you, this is not a, like a oh, sad thing. This is an honest thing. My wife and I, at this point, were hoping that we would be starting a family. That hasn't happened yet. That's okay, but it's not according to plan. Um, and, and maybe a lot of you can understand that. I've had conversations with many couples throughout the years that struggle with not being able to start a family. Um, Evie, my wife in particular, told me honestly, she said, uh, I'm really upset because due to circumstances outside of my control, within her degree, she's finishing her bachelor's online while working full time. Uh, she was supposed to be done last month, December 2021. But because of the way classes were offered that were required for her degree program, or outside of her control. Now she's not getting done till September of this year. That's a, almost a whole year later. She's really upset about that. Those are circumstances outside of her control. Um, personally, for the both of us, my wife and I, we did not expect to get COVID. How many of you here expected to get COVID? Uh, I don't think very many of us did. Uh, maybe you knew it was coming with how much it was going around, but if in the month of December, you can ask Jarell in particular, I had a conversation with her right before I got COVID about everything that I was excited to do for us as a church. I'm not going to tell you what it was because I'm saving it for next year, Lord willing enough that no storms come, that we were going to do for the month of December, just fun stuff. I got COVID like the first few days into December, and I didn't come back till Christmas Eve. There goes the Christmas season. All of these aspects, just from my personal life, sitting down and my wife, it's like, that was a storm. I didn't ask for it, but I had to go through it. We had to weather through it. And I know that all of us here have been through storms. And I'm telling you right now, all of us are going to continually go through storms. In Acts chapter 27, we read the start of Paul the Apostle's literal storm. And I need you to understand that it is a literal historical account that happened. But... Let me give you a quick teaching moment before we actually get into the text. Um, there is something within the realm of English and grammar, but specifically within the realm of biblical scholasticism, hermeneutics, studying God's word, and preaching, uh, homiletics, that is titled as allegory, where if I was to take a scripture and allegorize it, let me give you an example of what that would be. And, and, and I would encourage you, don't amen, because then you might look a little bit silly by the end of it. This is a teaching moment that I want to empower you with. Um, let me give you an example of what 
I could do as a preacher to allegorize a message which I heard this firsthand from a preacher one time, and I've heard many more like it. Um, in Matthew chapter 17, there's this dispute between uh, certain temple leaders and Jesus and his disciples about paying the temple tax. It's similar to when the Pharisees approached uh, Peter and, sa- and Jesus uh, about paying taxes to Caesar, but it's a little bit different. And pretty much Jesus has a discourse with his disciples about should, shouldn't we pay the, the temple tax to the Jewish synagogues, temples? Um, and Jesus says to Peter, hey, Peter, go fishing. And you're going to catch a fish. And in that fish, there is going to be a gold piece in the mouth of that fish. I want you to take that and I want you to pay the temple tax. Literally, what we should glean from that, if we're, we're doing proper biblical study and, and hermeneutics, is we give to Jesus before all else. And I don't mean monetarily, I mean our lives. Just like give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God. Jesus is right here doing a similar thing, saying, okay, listen, it's a man-made construct. As long as it doesn't cause you to compromise your faith, be at peace with everybody. And if they require a temple tax, pay it. Otherwise, you're going to tarnish your witness as a Christian. You can have your thoughts about it. You can even speak up about it. But if it is a law, a literal law in the country, follow it. Otherwise, you're tarnishing the name of Jesus, unless it's a law that causes you to compromise your faith in sin. Then, nope, you're going to have to say, sorry, not doing that, no matter what comes at you. That's the same message. And what's powerful about this one is Jesus says, and I'll provide it for you. That's the outcome. You don't know how you're going to do it? I'll provide it for you. Literally, go fishing, and there's going to be money in a fish's mouth. How many of you want that literally to happen? That's proper hermeneutics of that in a very overarching way. This message allegorically has been preached um, to kind of give the idea that, um, hey, here's, here's the bottom line. If I were to preach a sermon allegorically based on this, be the fish God wants you to be. God wants to use you as that fish. And you never know when he's going to pick you up and suck you out of that pond. And then you're going to be able to provide for somebody else. You kind of see what I mean when I say allegory. You're putting into the text your own idea of what would be there. um, And and it's not proper. You're not sinning and going to hell, but you're completely missing every word inspired by God that is intended to teach us something that he wants to teach us. The message that might even be presented in an allegorical message could be correct, but not based on that text. And they need to find another scripture that speaks to it. Guess what? Today I'm allegorizing this scripture for you. uh, Acts chapter 27 and 28, I'm allegorizing for you, but I don't want you to think how improperly I'm doing it. Because, listen, historically Paul went through a literal storm. But how many of us go out on a boat every day for our profession? How many of us journey on a boat regularly in our daily lives? And how many of us have to go through literal storms? We all have. But I believe here, based on what we see, there are so many principles that God wants us to learn. And I want to talk about storms metaphorically. We can think about them literally, absolutely. But I don't want it to be subjugated to such a limited understanding when we need God's help in every situation, especially the ones that are outside of our control. Um, So let's get into Paul's final words. And before I read the first eight verses, the first point that I have for you as a question is this. How do storms change our circumstances? 
when you're going through something that you did not precipitate and ask for and did nothing to deserve, but nonetheless have to go through, how do they change our circumstances? Acts chapter 27, starting in verse 1, it says this. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, it's an important note right there. This is Luke writing Acts, and he's speaking in the plural first person right here. We, or second person, excuse me. We, he's saying, I was with them. I think it's powerful just to remember. Um, when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some of the other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the imperial regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramidium. That's a great one. I like to say that. Adramidium. Midium. Okay. About to sail for the ports along the coast of the province of Asia. And we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. Not a common thing that a centurion would do while carrying a prisoner. From there, we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus because the, notice this, winds were against us. Number one. Verse five. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed in Myra and in Lycia. Then the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on that ship, put us on board. We made, underline this, slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Cnidus. When the wind did not allow us, when the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete, opposite Salamis. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fairhaven near the town of Lycia. Here's the first thing that we see historically accurate from this account. Um, Paul had a lot of difficulty in this journey. And for us, it teaches us this. Storms remove us from our comfort zone. Because you need to understand what's happening here. Paul was not being carried against his will to go to Rome on this journey. In fact, Paul, if he had so chosen, didn't even have to go stand before Caesar in the city of Rome. He was, if you go back and read, put on trial before Felix and Festus and Agrippa. And every time, as mad as the Jews who wanted him to be put to death because of his Christianity, um, every time these Romans or Roman constituents looked at him and in a court of law said he's done nothing wrong. But Paul specifically as he stands before the final guy Agrippa says I appeal to Caesar. And according to Roman law now he has every right to go to Caesar. In fact it's the centurions and the Roman officials job to transport him. So he could have gone free but now he's a prisoner of his own volition on his way to stand before Caesar to present the gospel. Paul had everything going his way. And it would be more appropriate with the thousands of miles that he would have to trek from Jerusalem all the way to another continent in Italy. Uh, country, technically, but another continent. Uh, in Italy, he would have to travel by land. Wouldn't be fast. Wouldn't make sense. So they voyaged by sea. None of this was outside of Paul's plans yet. Yet. And it says that along the way, they had much difficulty. How many of you when you know you are following God's will for your life and you are doing everything his way and doing it right, 
inevitably find yourselves in circumstances that are so uncomfortable that you did not ask for. And you're wondering, why is everything coming against me right now in my life? Opposition, 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 opposition. They're going where they're supposed to go through the means that were most appropriate. Nothing wrong. It was difficult. The wind was against us. We had a hard time making progress. Come on. I know that we have all felt that in this place. That's what Paul's going through right now. Literally. He's outside of his comfort zone and so are his fellow shipmates. Or, um, and let me just say this. This is, this is really practical. Um, say because of COVID, there are times you can't be in church. And again, I know those watching online, you're going through that. Or because of unforeseen circumstances that are outside of your control, you can't be in the, in the house of God. Um, I only bring this up because I, I've been having communication with a lot of people over the last few weeks, months, a little bit more than that, especially for the last year and a half, two years now since COVID, where people have been so heavy hearted. Or maybe you're at a place of disability that you can't just make it here. Or maybe work, no matter what you do, you're trying to, but you, you just can't make it to church. I still would say we need to fight for the value of being together. But that being said, let me tell you this. If it's outside of your control and you can't be in the house of God with the people of God, have church at home. Don't make it a norm. But don't let the circumstances outside of your control, if you're watching online, don't allow these circumstances that are outside of your control to allow you to fall into a place of complacency. You are in an uncomfortable position, maybe, that you did not ask for. Don't allow that to hinder God from what he wants to do in your life. So storms can remove us from our comfort zone in ways that we didn't ask for. This isn't a growing teaching moment of, you know, how we say sometimes you need to be placed outside of your comfort zone in order for you to learn. I'm not really hitting that. I'm just straight up saying you didn't ask for it and you're there. How do you respond? Let's jump to verse 9 and keep reading. Much time had been lost. On their journey, Luke is saying, like, man, we should have been way further ahead than we are right now. And sailing had already become dangerous. Because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. That's giving us an understanding of the calendar year of the events of what's taking place. Where right now it's getting into the winter season and it's dangerous to sail on the open waters. And Luke is recording the fact it's not only hindering us, it's going to hurt us. Likely. So, Paul warns the entire crew. Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to the ship and cargo, and to our lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. So it's kind of interesting what's happening here. Um, you know, before I talk about it, let me just give you this point. Storms demand a change in value. Storms demand, if anything, that you reevaluate the values that you have in your life. Um, I, 
I just think it's fascinating what's happening here because let's think about it uh, through the lens of common sense. Things are going really terribly, uh, and now it's becoming dangerous, and Paul speaks up and says, hey, guys, let me just give you my two cents. If we set out again into the open waters, because they were docked now, if we set out into the open waters, it's going to be really bad for us. Not only is it going to compromise our load, and I'll, I'll kind of get into that in a second. You know, I'm gonna, I am gonna, going to get into that now. It's, it's going to compromise our load. What you see if you read this chapter, I'm trying not to jump all over the place to confuse you, but it says at the end that they threw the grain overboard. You're going to see they throw some tackle overboard, but then later on they throw the grain overboard. What's likely believed is that while this was transporting Paul and a few other prisoners, primarily it was a grain ship that was transporting uh, goods, merchandise, to the mainland in Italy at Rome to be sold in the marketplace, which means the sailor, his crew, are not going to get paid unless they transport their merchandise all the way unscathed and unsullied to the mainland. So practically speaking, Paul was speaking in their best interest, but it meant they were going to have to wait and not get paid. And maybe some other things went through their mind, but that's the first thing that Paul hit. Kind of common sense. Uh, but then he goes on and he says, listen, I'm telling you, it's going to be a danger to our very lives in this moment. And, and we need to be careful and mindful of that. Common sense, right? Well, there's another form of common sense that takes place, if we're being honest. The centurion, here's Paul out. Here, here's, a, here's a big Paul out. And goes on over to the pilot. And he says, all right, here's what Paul says. Um, what do you say? You're the professional. And he was. He was the pilot. Paul's not a pilot. He's not a sailor. Um, and he goes to him and he says, what do you think? And he's like, no, we got to go. We're going to go. Uh, I've been through things like these. We can handle it. Maybe he was lying. Honestly, I think money was driving him. Understandably so. It was his profession. He needed to get paid. His men needed to get paid. But in that moment, I think obviously he didn't allow the weightier of common sense to overrule in the decision making. Paul's was common sense. His was common sense, and Paul's is a little bit smarter. Let's be safe. He's saying, no, let's be bold, and let's go for it. Take note of that. Um, and here's what you need to understand from that. To the sailors, their livelihood was more important than their lives. Because when you're confronted with real circumstances that you have to be honest with, they were going through much difficulty. It was the time of year where sailing would be more dangerous, and you have one of the own people on ships saying, hey, guys, maybe we should really consider our timeline and how and when we, you know, leave port. We need to be mindful of our very lives. But they allowed their value for a living to dictate their decision. How many of us do that, especially when we're going through a storm? Things get difficult, and now... My job needs to be the most important thing in my life. I'm talking about job right here. When I say livelihood, I'm not talking about any other application. That's what I see here in the text, and that's what I think we need to challenge ourselves with. We need to make a living. A livelihood is literally, I, I need to do this work in order to provide for myself, for my family, so there's nothing bad about it. However, if you value that above the very lives that are at stake within my care, the captain of the ship. Parents, I'm speaking to you. Husbands, I'm speaking to you. Wives, I'm speaking to you. 
That, like I said last week, there are times that our jobs can take precedence, and that might be okay for a season. And then there are other times that we need to reevaluate our value system and say, as important as this is, we are going to need to hunger down and weather through the storm rather than go right out into the middle of it and potentially destroy our families, our relationships, our lives. Livelihood is important, but not at the expense of your life spouse's life and your kid's life and your relationships um it was interesting i heard a i heard a little story that i verified in the internet i don't know how true it is but apparently it is historical back in the late 1800s there was a wrestler by the name of yusuf um the terrible turk um he was turkish and he was a wrestler and he would travel all over the place and while he had some defeats he became known as like this he was literally a giant girthy man that you did not want to get in the ring with and it wasn't like i don't even know what it's called today but like wwe wf raw as much as i respect that because guys still get hurt it's choreographed to a degree um not this kind of wrestling this is just brute force let's have it out break bones whatever we're gonna do and manliest man is gonna be the winner he became like the manliest man in this sport and he travels from Paris, even though he's Turkish, he travels from Paris to Britain, and he has this exhibition match, and he wins. And one of the things that he was known for was that he refused to get paid unless it was in gold coins. And he would always carry that gold coin in, like, a, a fanny pack around his waist. I didn't know they had fanny packs in the eight, late 1800s. I guess they had a form of it. Man. Um, and he won a match in Britain and took a charter ship, a, 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 just a big boat, that was chartering a lot of people from Europe back, from Britain back to Paris. And along the way, they started to sink. Didn't tell us why. And legend has it that he just very abruptly and rudely pushes everybody to the side, runs to the lifeboat, sees that it's already down in the water, hops over the ship down into the lifeboat, and immediately, I, I don't know if he was that heavy or whatever, the boat starts to sink sink and he, or he falls out of the boat but while he could swim he still had five thousand dollars worth of gold coin strapped to himself in his fanny pack and he couldn't get it off and immediately sunk and drowned to his death and i think that's a very appropriate anecdote for us to look at to understand man you could be some of the most successful people you can be working so hard in your profession and be good at it but at what cost paul warns if you go for it you want to get paid you don't want to lose your clients you you want to save face and get there on time it's going to result in a lot more difficulty than we would have to go through as opposed to you know what let's reevaluate let's do something else storm demands that we have a change in our values um let me just read for you and then i'll give you the next point we'll we'll continue the story when a gentle south wind began to blow they saw their opportunity so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of crete before very long so didn't listen to paul they see a, a good strong wind they say there's an opportunity let's get after it and before very long a wind of hurricane force called the nor'easter swept down from the island the ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind 
so we gave way to it. We couldn't fight it. We had to give into it. Um, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of the small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together because they were afraid that they would run aground on the sandbars, sandbars of Cyprus. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo, the tackle overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up hope of being saved. Do you, do you see the situation? They had an opportunity to reassess their values. They don't. And they think, ooh, storm's in our favor or wind's in our favor. And just after a short little while, boom, all hell breaks loose. So much so that now they have to start throwing overboard their very cargo. Some of the grain likely that they had. Not all of it, as we're going to see in a few moments. And then they said, okay, you know what? Let's not get rid of all the grain. Let, let's go for our tackle. Tackle was mostly, you know, maybe some furniture, maybe some things that were comfortable but not necessary. Let's get rid of that. Still, still giving them such a hard time. It's not helping that much. And you have to understand, for navigation purposes back in this time, the stars were your navigation. The stars were your compass. That's how any sailor was able to really be worth his salt was being able to steer his ship in accordance with the compass of the stars it says that it was cloudy so that they could not see the stars literally they are stranded they can do nothing they are just weathering the storm now it's a matter unfortunately not for paul but the rest of the the ship and the sailors now they did put themselves in this situation now this was a matter of their their own doing but again i don't really want to focus on that too much so let me give you this next point. Storms provide us with an opportunity to step up. Let's focus on Paul. What does Paul do in all this? Number one, we saw already um, from the start, Paul, even though he's a prisoner, he's a captive being led to Rome to stand before Caesar. Even though he's a prisoner, we've already seen Paul stands up as a leader. We saw the first warning. Paul honestly says, hey, guys, I don't think it would be wise for us to go. We're going to compromise the integrity of our cargo and our very lives. I don't think we should. He spoke up even though he knew it wouldn't be favorable. They didn't listen to him. Um, now, uh, let's see his first encouragement. Verse 21, he says this. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, I love this part right here. Watch this, watch this. Men! You should have taken my advice and not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves the damage in this loss. I told you so. Maybe, maybe not. I think more Paul wasn't trying to be petty. I think he was really trying to say, listen, let's do this. I warned you against this and you didn't listen. Sometimes that's necessary. Sometimes, not all the time, and it definitely depends on your tone and your attitude. But sometimes it's like, listen, let's be real so that, we don't make the same mistake twice. You didn't listen. So let, let me give you some encouragement now. We're, we are where we are, but let's make the best of it. Um, but now, I urge you, keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Not one of you will be lost. That's a bold statement from a man of God. Only the ship will be destroyed. 
last night. Okay, how do you know that? How could you make such a bold claim, Paul? Well, let me show you. Last night, an angel of God, uh, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me. He's not speaking to Christians. That's what that shows us right there. He's speaking to non-Christians of many backgrounds. And that angel said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all those who share with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Um, I, I like that last part. Uh, I really like that last part during this encouragement, and if I could just say this about it. Um, right there, we see kind of a deep doctrinal theology that has been widely debated that, again, I don't want to get into too much, but I'll, I'll give a little bit of flavor to it right now, I'll give you a little taste. Have you ever heard of the argument between Calvinism and Arminianism? Um, I would encourage you at some point, research it. It's good to deepen your faith. Um, I think it's secondary, subsidiary. It's not, in other words, it's an open-handed item. We could agree to disagree on it. It's not Calvinists are going to hell if they believe in Calvinism. You need to be an Arminianist, and no, you need to be an Arminianist, and if you're not, you're going to hell. It's not one of those. It's just, hey, I particularly read Scripture, and I think more of a Calvinist take. What is that? Ultimately, Calvinists believe everything is predetermined under the sovereignty of God. In other words, it's kind of, in a, if we would translate it to secularism, everything is, um, oh man, I forgot the title for it, but it's, de oh, determinism, determinism. Literally, biologically, your makeup teaches, shows us the breath that you just took, the craving that you just had for a pizza, you were biologically determined to want to do that. You have no free will. That's utter garbage, even though a lot of philosophers and current atheists and scientists subscribe to that way of being. Um, Calvinism isn't much different despite what they say. Don't question my mind. You didn't glean that. Um, they really do believe that, but it's beautiful because it's under the sovereignty of God. So while the deter secular determinists would say it's, it's because of biology, the Calvinists would say it's because of God, and he's a great God, and it's all because of him. I read this, and did you read what I just read? Let me go back for it. Let me go back to it. He says, take courage. None of you are going to die. Let me tell you why. God, through his messenger and angel, spoke to me and said that I've got a plan. I, I've got a, a, a mission, and I'm not going to have that mission stifled here. God's going to protect me, and he's graciously given me all of you. So you're under the protection of God's covering, whether you realize it or not. So God's in control. But the very last part uh, of this, verse 26, nevertheless, uh, excuse me, lost my spot. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Oh, we're not there yet. Whew, okay, we're not there yet. Here it is. I got to read it for you. I got to read the whole next part for you, and then I'll get back to it. 27, on the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. When about at midnight, look what happened, the sailors sensed they were approaching the land. They took soundings and found that the uh, water was 120 feet deep. A shorter time later, they took soundings again and found that it was 90 feet deep. 
fearing that they would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed till daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, here it is, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the rope of the lifeboat and let it drift away. That, that, that was the main part right here. So Paul gives this incredible word of encouragement. And then as a little bit of time goes on, on the 14th night, so 14 day goes by where they're still just adrift in this storm. Anybody would be discouraged. But the sailors, the guys who made the decision and said, no, don't listen to Paul, it'll be fine. They go in the dead of night and sneak and pretend like they're doing something to help everybody get into the lifeboat to try and sail away. It says that there were 247 people um, on this crew, not enough for the lifeboat to sink. So they said, we're going to sail down the river. And Paul warns the centurion, and he says, unless they stay on the boat, you won't be saved. But didn't Paul just say that God said, you don't need to worry. I've graciously given all these lives into your hands. You're all going to be okay. Sovereignty of God. We're good. He's taking care of it all. We have nothing to do with it. We can't change it. He's got it. And then right here, unless they stay on the boat. This is where I believe in a healthy understanding of sovereignty and free will. God is in control of everything. And under his control within his divine plan, he has told us, you have a decision to make. I am sovereign, even over my sovereignty. God is not limited by saying, because I'm in control of everything, therefore I need to control all of you. No, I can, I'm in control of everything. Therefore, I control how the lives you live will be played out. I give it into your hands. So in other words, the message right there is God is going to take care of us. We need to trust him to do it. These men were trying to take matters into their own hands. Hmm. All right. So let, let's let's now talk as Paul is exhibiting incredible leadership during this time in, in such pivotal ways. Um, it teaches us something about Paul's witness, Paul, the missionary, Paul the leader and the, the carrier of the gospel to the Gentiles who evangelized the entire known Roman Empire except for Rome itself, which he's on his way to do now. Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, we know him to be the man of God, the evangelist, the missionary, one of the apostles. Other than sharing the fact about how his God was going to save them all, Luke doesn't record at any point that he actually stood up and gave a gospel message and performed healings like he normally does in his ministry and tries to evangelize and share the gospel. We don't see that. But what have we seen? Paul being a man of God in his everyday facets. He's a captive and a prisoner, but he doesn't allow his circumstances to dictate his response. He says, okay, I see that they're not making a lot of wise decisions. I'm going to speak up. They don't want to listen to me? Okay, I'm still going to speak up. He could have said, you know what? You asked for this. You know what? You need to deal with it. No. He says, I, I did warn you, but you know what? Be encouraged. You're going to be okay as long as you trust 
that what my God said will come to pass. And then in the dead of night, when they try to leave, Paul, who this could have gone badly for him, screams out to the centurion and says, if they leave, we'll all die. Obviously, literally, in a sense, you can read that as if they take the lifeboat, there's not going to be enough for us. But I don't believe, based on what Paul said, that's what he's talking about. He's saying we need to trust in God, whether you know the God that I serve or not. So here's the point. Paul's witness is his leadership. Sometimes it's not about proclaiming the gospel verbally in a preaching sense or getting up on a box in the middle of uh, downtown and saying, repent all you sinners and come to the, you know what I'm saying? Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have, that we should be ashamed of sharing the gospel. I'm not, but I am giving the other side to this. Let your life be a witness of God. This was not an easy thing, I'm sure, for Paul to do. He was a prisoner who was going to listen to him, and yet he did it anyway. Um, So he doesn't openly evangelize, but he allows his leadership to function as his witness. Um, When he finally talks about God for the first time in the angelic appearance, uh, he doesn't even give a gospel invitation. Then he encourages the people to eat and I I didn't read it for you, but if you read all of the chapter, what he does after encouraging them, uh, he says, you know what, let's take some food. You haven't eaten for 14 days. It's not that they didn't have food. It's that they were literally in such turmoil because of the storm that they were going through. I don't know if you've ever been that way. I've been that way, where I am so distraught over the storm of life that I'm in that I literally do not want to eat. I'm sick to my stomach. I've been that way. That is what is happening here for the entire crew. Paul gets up gives encouragement and what i love is that he openly gives thanks to god he doesn't say hey let let, let me evangelize to you and then what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna break bread and we're gonna have a communion service and and you need to repent he doesn't do any of that he says hey guys uh, you all are down right now and i know we don't know each other that well but let me just give you some encouragement i believe that my god is going to deliver us and i know you're all weary right now and you don't know my god and all that fine you know here's what we can do let's let's eat and I know you're worried, but, but let's eat. But he doesn't leave it there. What he does is he takes some bread and he breaks it. And whether he, he, he cares about whether the people are listening or not, Paul verbally, out loud, in front of all the people, says, God, thank you. Lord, I thank you for this meal that I have. I thank you that you have sustained us this far. And I thank you that I know that I can trust in the promise of your word that you have shown me. Thank you, God. He does this openly in front of everyone. Still, he's not openly evangelizing in an active way, but he's evangelizing. He's witnessing, which which brings this point up that I want you to hear. Paul doesn't force God, but he doesn't keep God at a distance from himself. He's not afraid to wear God on his sleeves in a sense. He said, I have courage and you should all be encouraged too because God spoke and said, we're all going to be by his graciousness saved. And I'm going to give thanks because he is good and I trust in that promise. So let's break bread and eat. How many of us say that in the workplace? How many of us say that in our secular circles where we know that our friends don't like God? Maybe they're very against God. When we're at family gatherings, we're like, oh, 
you know, just small things. We, we're, we're under this mentality that, man, I can force God on people. I just got to show them God. And, and that's what Paul is doing, and I'm agreeing with that. But now I'm speaking to the adverse side of it. We get too caught up with that, and we can think, well, I just show him. Well, you're not showing him. You think you're showing him, but you're hiding him. You might be doing a really good job in your mind showing him, but what you're communicating is good morals. Morals do not get you to heaven. Paul says they're like filthy rags. You can be as good as you want, but if you're communicating to people how good I am, look at me, be like me, that is hopeless. And that is a lie that is going to bring people further into the pit of despair because now they feel they have to emulate a version of what they see in you as good as you might be, and they can't do it. That is more harm than it is good. But when you communicate and say, you're curious why I am the way that I am. Listen to me. I am so far from perfect. All I can tell you, it is because of Jesus and the God that I know and that I serve. And I don't do it because he told me to. All my life I live is because of thankfulness, because of what he's done for me. That's my hope. Paul is doing that through all of this. At no point to say, hey, guys, we should eat because it's the smart thing to do. Guys, take some bread. And, and you know what? I'm giving thanks to God because I can eat this food right now, and I know that it's not going to be my last meal. He doesn't force God, but he doesn't keep God a secret. Now, uh, just on a, a, a little interesting note, in the beginning, it kind of when Paul gave his first uh, advice about not wanting to leave port and saying it would probably be better if we wait waited out for the season and then resume our journey um i can't help but read that and the centurion looks at preacher man paul who is a captive and then he goes to an expert a sailor and takes his advice i can't imagine can't help but imagining he's a dumb preacher what does he know he knows about his god but what does he know about this real life situation um i'm just gonna say i'm not about a go on a rant i'm just saying it honestly as a pastor and talking with other pastors much older in between and then my age all of us have experienced this specifically as ministers a lot of people don't take us seriously they somewhat take us seriously in this moment when we're communicating with the congregation sometimes in counseling but a lot of times it gets to a crossroads of whether it's said outrightly or not it's more of this you know they're thinking it and feeling it and it's determining how they're going to respond to what you say as a minister you don't know what you're talking about because you're just a you don't know like my field of profession what i walk through uh you know i appreciate your advice but let the big boy handle this i'm just saying i've experienced that i don't care you know what you're hurting yourself if you don't want to listen to counsel i you're right i'm not an expert i don't know those things but i trust god and i know that he can speak and use me in ways outside of my control um so i'm good but you're going to hurt yourself if you do that whether to a pastor an, a fellow believer that might have a different profession trust god above yourself and if he speaks to you, listen. And they didn't do that. And you want to know what is interesting? Paul isn't so much uh, uh, a baby about these things. He's not immature about these things. He actually writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. He says this three times. I was shipwrecked. And I spent a night and a day in the open sea. Prior to this journey in the storm on the ship, he's been shipwrecked three times. How many boys and girls on that ship could have probably said, yeah, we've been through this before. We know exactly what's going to happen. No, they were distraught. They didn't know what to do with themselves. Even the sailors, they were so terrified. And, and what's really powerful is Paul says, I spent a night and a day in the open sea. In other words, one of those shipwrecks resulted in me not running, uh, finding land immediately. I was waiting in open water for a night and a day. Imagine the terror if you don't know what's lurking beneath you. 
So Paul wasn't to- a total imbecile and inexperienced about these things. So he's, he's also speaking from a place of experience. Here's, here's what I finally want to conclude based on all of that now. Watch out for people who tell you how to live, then steal your means of living. We're going to do this. Paul, you don't know what you're talking about. Immediately a storm blows. Paul gets up, gives more encouragement, said, you didn't listen to me? You know what? That's okay. I encourage you, listen to what I'm about to say. God has graciously given us, you all, into my his hands because I've got a journey that I've got to complete. So as long as you trust in him and you're obedient to him. 14 days later, let's go get the boat. Let's get out of here and leave these chumps. Those are the people that the centurion listened to in this moment. Are you allowing yourself to buy in to what people are saying to you that might have common sense? But what are their values? What do they align themselves with? But now you just say, no, but they know what they're talking about because of their credentials, because of their experience. And Paul's like, you know what? I'm not going to sit here and lay out my credentials because that would be petty. But you know what? I do know a little bit of what I'm talking about. But ultimately, God has spoken to me, and that supersedes everything. And I'm telling you, you know, don't, don't worry. Don't worry that they steal in the dead of night and literally tried to steal it. Watch out for people who tell you how to live, and then they turn right around, and they steal your means of living, literally and figuratively, emotionally, spiritually. Lastly, I think it's very powerful that we're, what we're about to read is that Paul's presence literally saved their lives. Um, let's continue on. They finally, I'm, I'm jumping out of verse 42. The ship breaks up. It literally broke apart, and now they're all waiting in open water, but they're right outside of the island of Malta. It says the soldiers planned to kill the rest of the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. The reason for that, again, you've heard me say this multiple times, in Roman society, if you were a soldier and you had a prisoner under your captivity, under your charge, under your watch, if they escaped, you were gonna, the penalty was you're going to lose your life. So they're thinking, okay, we're not going to be able to deliver our prisoners to Rome at this point because we've lost our ship. We need to kill them. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get their were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached the land safely. Can I say this? And this is really powerful. I remember uh, my former lead pastor uh, say this to me all the time. You don't understand how powerful your presence is. And I'm going to say this to you. Don't despise the power of your presence, no matter how unfortunate your circumstances might be. You might be thinking, what can I do for people in this season of life that I'm going through? I'm miserable. I am miserable. Don't despise the power of your presence. And, and I don't mean that just in a literal sense where I'm communicating to you, yo, you got to be at everything and go to everything and, and exhaust yourself. I am not saying that. I'm saying, though, there are going to be opportunities where you feel in your heart, I need to be a part of this. I don't really want to. You have no idea what God wants to do for you in this moment. Every single passenger on this ship, every one, 247, were to live because of Paul. 
God said it. I've graciously given them into your hand. And right here, the centurion follows through. Um, so in this story so far, we've seen Paul exercising his Christian leadership in a secular environment. Many of you here today need to understand how applicable this is to your life. Unless you're working in a completely Christian environment, which the majority do not, you have an opportunity, an opportunity to carry what you experienced within the family of God out into the world and witness Jesus, even if it means you're not saying, hey, let me share the gospel with you right away. It's powerful. So here, here's one of our last points as we're coming close to the end. Paul believed so strongly in the sovereignty of God, there it is, um, that he could, uh, God, Paul believed so strongly in the sovereignty of God that he could look beyond the bleak situation and anticipate good. Paul's in the middle of the storm. He goes, I know the God that I serve. He's in control. Let me read for you. I, I have two Old Testament passages that I want to read for you. The first is written by the prophet Jeremiah. Um, guys, I don't know if we have this on the screen, but I'm going to read it from my Bible. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 32, starting in verse 6, and it says this. There will be a day when the watchmen cry out on the hills of Ephraim, Come, let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. And this is what the Lord says. Sing with joy. I'm reading the wrong scripture. I knew it. Excuse me. Chapter 32, verse 6. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle is going to come to you and say, Buy my field at Anathoth, because as nearest relative it is your right and duty to buy it then just as the lord had said my cousin hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the garden and said hey buy my field at anathoth in the territory of benjamin since it is your right to redeem it and possess it buy it for yourself i knew that this was the word of the lord key i knew this was god's word he told me to do it and here it's happening right before me so i bought the field at anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed, and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions, as well as the unsealed copy, and I gave this deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, the son of Mahasiah, uh, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel and the witnesses who had signed the deed and all the Jews sitting on the porch of the garden. So everything is very legal, what's happening right here. In their presence, I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Take these documents, the deeds, both the sealed and the unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so that they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. What you don't understand, what's happening right now within the context of the scripture, is that Jeremiah is openly going about proclaiming in the midst of a very difficult time where the kingdoms of Israel and Judah were defying God, and now they were being bombarded and laid siege to in their cities, and they were going to be led off into captivity. And Jeremiah was preaching that message saying, you weren't repenting. 
hear the consequences, get ready or repent. But then they miss the receptive hope from the mouth, God's mouth. And they follow through in it. And, and I love the symbolism here. Takes the deed, puts it in the clay jar, buries it because it goes right here in this place, in this field that I bought. We're going to return to this place one day and it's going to flourish and we're going to bear fruit. He believed in the word of God. He did all of this because he believed in the word of God. All right. Let me read for you now uh, Acts 28 verses 1 through 4. This is important. Back to Paul. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper driven out by the heat fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man, this is important, must be a murderer for though he escaped from the sea the goddess justice has not allowed him to live here's what i see as a proverbial believed to be truth across cultures across time itself ready for it bad things always happen to bad people if bad things are happening there must be something wrong with you right let me read for you Psalm chapter 73, the other Old Testament scripture. It's a cry by a man of God. And he says this. I'm going to read the whole chapter, so just please listen up. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Surely God is good to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Why? Because I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked they have no struggles their bodies are healthy and strong they're free from common human burdens they're not plagued by human ills therefore pride is their necklace they clothe themselves with violence from their callous hearts comes iniquity their evil imaginations have no limits they scoff and speak with malice with arrogance they threaten oppression their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up the, their waters in abundance. They say, oh, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? Uh, this is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. See what he's saying? This is why he almost fell and lost his foothold. Because he believed, you know what, surely this whole God thing is wrong. Because look, I'm not bearing any abundant prosperity fruit in my life. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands of innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishment. Even though I'm pure. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. He just switched his... His, now his teaching. If I had spoken like that, if I was communicating the gospel, what's the point of any of this? Why do we even serve God? I would have betrayed your children. When I try to understand all of this, reconcile why, when I believe bad things ought to happen to bad people, but good things are happening to bad people, when, when I try to understand all this, it troubled me deeply as until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their foundation. Until I entered the house of God. 
It wasn't until then that I understood what this meant. It's this idea of wrestling. We see Jacob in the Old Testament, and he has an encounter with God. Wrestle him. And God pops his hip out of his socket, and he still says, I'm not letting go of you. I need your blessing, God. He fights with God. Not not in a prideful, arrogant, evil, wicked way. It's like, God, I'm not letting you go until I get what I know you have the ability to give me. I need your blessing. That's exactly what's happening in this psalm. God, I cannot reconcile why good things are happening to bad people. Bad things should happen to bad people. Why doesn't it work the way that we think it should go? Even non-Christians, non-Jews, had the same thought process. Snake bit him. That guy over there, well, he was a captain, so I bet he's a murderer. He's obviously getting what he deserves. And they're waiting, kind of like crass. It's like, man, when is he going to swell up and start suffocating and curl up on the ground and die? Right? Verse 5. I love this. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and saw that he said he was a god. So, so again, I, I know you saw it, but just imagine it. They're waiting for this poor dude's demise because in their mind, he did something bad. He deserves what's coming to him next. They were natives of the island, so they knew that snake and certain death was imminent for him. And it's just kind of like weird. It's almost like a behind-the-scenes, like, old MTV punked or whatever thing, like, waiting for, like, the camera guys coming out, like, you got punked or something like that. But they're actually watching and waiting for him to die. Like, how long has he got? How long you mean? Five minutes? Ten minutes? All right, you want to put money in there? All right, all right, let's wait. And they're waiting, and all of a sudden, they just see Paul, like, Burns up in the fire, and he's like, hmm, all right, let's get some more wood on the fire. There we go. And just walks along, continues going on his business. They're like, what, what, what are we missing here? Anybody would have died because of the venom of that snake. What is going on here? Here's what I truly believe. I, I don't know that Luke intended to communicate this, but I believe it without question reading this, that this teaches us right here the undeniable reality that just because, just because bad things happen, it doesn't mean it has to happen to bad people. A bad thing happened to Paul right there. A bad thing happened to Paul right there. He was not a bad person for all intents and purposes. Psalm 73. Go back and I'll just encourage you to read it, dwell on it, reflect on it. Um. But ultimately, it leaves us with this question. Why was Paul so sure? I mean, what would you do in a situation where you get bit by a snake, especially one that you know is poisonous? You probably run to the hospital, try to, you know, I need anti-venom, maybe like spit the blood out, trying to get the poison out of you. Whatever you can do so that you don't die, you're, you're trying to save your life in that moment. And Paul shakes it off, burns in the fire, not a care in the world. Why? How? You know, Paul knew God's word. 
You know, it literally says, if you go back and read a few chapters prior, that Agabus, the prophet, prophesied over Paul and said, you are going to be tossed and led in chains before Caesar. (laughs) That's where you're going to face your final minutes. So that's a little bit still tough, but ultimately it's like Paul through the storm that they weathered through. Maybe I'm not worried. I know God's will for my life, and it's not ending here. A venomous snake bites him. I don't care. Shake it off. It has no power over me because I know God didn't say you're going to die in Malta by a snake. He knew God's word, and God's word to him was you are going to stand before Caesar. Paul knew God's will for his life, and he utterly trusted in it. You might be going through a storm in your life, and you are so easily shook by it, and you are every day trying to fight for life itself. You're filled with anxiety. You're filled with worry. You're filled with anger. You're filled with jealousy. You're doing everything that you think is right, and you're wondering, man, God, why is all of this happening to me? As opposed to, God, I know your will for my life. And I know I'm going to have to go through storms along the way, but I don't need to worry through those storms because you have spoken over me, and I trust you. Paul knew God's plan for his life, close with this verse Romans 8 28 says this and we know that in all things all things all seasons all circumstances God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose amen would you stand with me on your feet today God, you are so good. Let's just give God some praise in our own voice and in our own words right now. Father, you are worthy to be praised in spite of what storms we might be weathering through right now in our lives. I pray right now that above all else, we would look to you. And God, we wouldn't just look to you. We wouldn't just say, yeah, I know about you, but we would trust in you. We wouldn't just say, I know God's word, but we would say, I believe it, and I trust it, and I live in accordance with it. Lord, I pray that if we need a redirection, and we need to reevaluate our value system, even ones that are good, that aren't timely for the season that we're in, Lord, I pray right now you would lay upon our hearts, you would move us to a place of honesty and say, God, I need you to help me realign my values that will be in accordance with your will. Lord, I pray that when we're more concerned about our livelihood than the lives you have called us to, we would be open with you and we would say, God, set me back on the right path. Help me to reset that value. God, when we're allowing people to speak to our lives who are going to turn around and remove the means of life from us and we have bought into what they're selling us, God, I pray that right now we would silence it and we would say, Lord, help me to remove myself from those relationships, from those people, from those voices of influence. God, let me be utterly and completely fixated on the words that you have spoken over my life. Jesus. Father, man, I I thank you. I thank you. 
that the year of 2022 is going to be a year of rediscovery. Rediscovery of what it is that you want us to know about you. What it is that you want us to believe about you. How it is that you want us to trust in you. Father, above all else, how it is that you want us to have a relationship with you. Lord, I pray that the love that you first showed us, we would experience anew. I pray that we would understand in a fresh way. We would feel it. We would smell it. We would breathe it. We would know that God is love. Father, I I thank you for the year 2022. Lord, I pray that as we embark upon it, I pray that every storm that comes our way that we did not ask for, that we did not precipitate, that we did not put ourselves in a position to go through, but we were just being faithful. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't lose our foothold like the psalmist says. But Lord, I pray that no matter how difficult it is, we would go into your house and we would contend with you and we wouldn't leave until our troubled hearts would be set right and anew before you. Father, I pray that the trajectory of 2022 would be one of complete and utter trust. praise your name. Father, be with us, Lord, through this season, healing in bodies, healing in minds, healing in hearts, healings in souls. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill your people, fill us to overflow. I know that your word will not return void, and God, it has accomplished what it set out to. So let fruit be born in our lives, good fruit be born out in our lives as we look and depend and are thankful to you for all of your goodness. Be with us this day. Be with us this week as we glorify your name above all else. And in Jesus' name, the people of God said, amen. Why don't you give God praise if you are thankful to him?